Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. What a way to start the episode. Welcome to Extended Clip. It is episode 233. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And on this episode, we are talking about Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Now, I gotta, I gotta fold out my notes into a big sheet here. This is a, this is a damn scholarly episode because you know what Throne of Blood is based off of old romeo and juliet <laughs> no just kidding um i i didn't know how to like approach that one without uh like being too obvious that i knew what the source material was of course but uh you know getting the shakespeare thing wrong but then it's like you can't you can't really pull that off I wait guess. wait shakespeare made this movie i thought uh kira kurosawa did <laughs> No, classic Eddie trying to undermine a POC <laughs> accomplishment by bringing up a dead white man. Yeah, who the fuck is Shakespeare, man? Like, I, I get know. that Kurosawa is a dead white man, but Shakespeare is not a POC. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is, of course, based on Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, which is why this is like the only one that uh, gets film treatments that are under two hours. You know, this one and the, the Orson Welles one is even quicker, I think. Uh, and, you know, Kurosawa had wanted to make a Macbeth for a while. Uh, actually, really early, um, about a decade earlier than this, he wanted to uh, because Shakespeare had been banished uh, in Japan, you know, during World War II because it was not Japanese uh, and they were very nationalist at the time. If anyone hasn't heard about Japanese nationalism around the mid-century, check it out. There was some, just fucked up. There was some crazy stuff going on. I know if people like to focus on the whole, you know, like, uh, oh, well, actually, no, people do focus on that. I forgot about Oppenheimer. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> Get into it. Look it up. Yeah, just look it up. Look up, is Oppenheimer real? That's where I want you to guide your Google searches today. But regardless... The count on that is probably insane. It's probably like <laughs> at least like 300,000 people Googled, is Oppenheimer real? So That is a low, low estimate, my friend. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, he wanted to make one after he was able to, after uh, Japan had allowed non-Japanese works to be published again. Uh, and then when he found out that Orson Welles had made his uh, version of Macbeth, he was like, all right, I respect Orson. I'll, I'll let that hang there for a while. I'll gestate on mine. And I think that is really important because the earlier Kurosawa I've seen has been, you know, good enough, of course, uh, you know, the, the 40s into the early 50s. But I think it's once you hit this film, film uh just from the sampling that i've seen you really get into his mature period uh in the mid 50s with you know uh, whether it's seven samurai and this one and i, I think ikiru is earlier 50s but uh I, it's just a really incredible feat of filmmaking to adapt this into uh, you know, feudal Japan settings from its Scottish roots. Uh, as everyone knows, you know, this is uh, Kurosawa transposing this to something of a, a no play because uh, he, he liked no rather than kabuki, uh, which is also a fascinating point. You know, if you've seen your Ozu, you've seen some families go see some no drama and being like, you know, the younger kids like, all right, what? what's going on here, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and the, the parents being, you know, deeply moved, but kind of in a stone-faced way. Uh, and then I think 
Kurosawa's version of reenacting no is not through how people now would see it, but using it to tell these like insane, almost pulpy genre stories. You know, like this is Shakespeare into a pulpy genre story. This is a, you know, uh, arrow and dagger uh, feudal Japan movie, and it happens to be a transposition of Macbeth. Uh, I, I just think this is like probably my favorite Shakespeare movie and one of my very favorite Kurosawa movies. Had you guys seen this before? Uh, I had not. Um, I think the, o- the only other Kurosawa Shakespeare thing I've seen is Ron. Um, which I love. That's probably my favorite of uh, his filmography that I've seen. But yeah, no, instantly just blown away by this one. Malcolm? Yeah, no, no I, I chose the movie, you know, for the episode. And I, you know, I chose this because I, I wanted to get more into Kurosawa because I kind of feel like he's a somewhat of a blind spot uh, for me personally. Like, I feel like I've seen handful of his movies, but I watched Yojimbo recently, maybe about a month ago. And I was just like, well, obviously this guy's like very good. One of the, you know, masters of cinema, as they like to say. And uh, so, yeah, I just thought, I, I don't think we, have we ever done Kurosawa for the no. show before? Not on the yeah. main segment. I know recently yeah. uh, I watched uh, I Live in Fear, his yeah. 50s post-atomic movie. And I was astonished by that one. I, I was like really taken aback by that. So I talked that one up on a, uh, a middle segment a few months back. But this is the first proper Kurosawa episode we've done. And I'm glad we waited because I may have had a slight aversion to him as like one of the film school auteurs at first uh, and it wasn't even an aversion it's just more that I didn't love Stray Dog and I liked Rashomon but didn't love it probably and then I just put him on the back burner for like five years and then I came back did Throne of Blood, Seven Samurai Yo Jimbo, uh, High and Low and then most recently I Live in Fear and it's like yeah the guy's easily like a top director He's and, and I haven't even really scratched the surface. Yeah I mean I feel like it's uh that's how it goes sometimes is it your cinephilia will take you deep into the crevices first and you'll miss something that's like very like just obviously good because i mean sometimes i think it's good to come back to that with like a greater appreciation and knowledge there as well but i I don't know sometimes you just like you've explored a lot and then you just go back to the big masters and understand why and also, it's just good to, even the ones that you did like right away, you know, with that same perspective, to revisit them, uh, those masters that showed you the way at first, you know, mm-hmm. like the remembering the first time I watched, you know, Hitchcock, uh, and remembering the first time I saw, you know, a Howard Hawks movie or something like that. Uh, actually, I think the first Hawks I watched was on uh, an iPad, even, like His Girl Friday on, uh, like, archive.us on an iPad or something like that. And, uh, I, you know that viewing while living at my mom's house, you know, not even 21 years old, uh, compared to my most recent viewing of it are, you know, worlds apart. So that's why sometimes I feel, you know, very thankful that I've set aside so many canon classics until I'm, you know, I'm still not old. I'm not even 30 yet. I'll be, you know, I got another year there. Uh, but like that compared to when I'm first getting, you know, super deep into studying quote unquote movies in my late teens, early twenties that I just feel like Kurosawa is a director that sure there are easy ways to impress an immature viewer, uh, the connections to Lucas and Spielberg and just the raw 
awesome action chops and Mifune being the biggest overactor of all time. Positive compliment, by the way. Uh, but I think reaching him at a more mature state in your cinephilia, I, I think is more about the combination of his dramatic chops and the, you know, social themes that he's approaching on such a big genre level, uh, as well as just like, yeah, he's a master of the form. He knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, anything uh, in terms of like your relationship to any like artistic medium is only going to, I feel like. If you're inquisitive and going down a lot of interesting rabbit holes, it's only going to like mature with age. And I think one thing I actually saw in film school that I I feel like left a big impression on me, even though I didn't go uh, deep into Kurosawa. But there's a clip of him like accepting like an honorary Oscar, like very late. Like he's probably like fucking 80 at this point. And in his like little acceptance speech, he's talking about like he's saying he feels like he still doesn't understand cinema and that like just someone who is like a titan and is like just making like just monumental work is still feeling just like that inquisitive and like maturing his own relationship to the medium. I feel like that very much so impressed upon me, like, I don't know, just his talent as an artist and just the the humble nature of his craft. Now, humble Malcolm, uh, you yeah. yourself said that you hadn't dove that deep into it, but uh, Yojimbo sparred the uh, the recent kick. So, how how'd you feel about this one? Uh, how in comparison to you know Yojimbo, were you wowed the same way? Did it hit different notes for you? Well, yeah, I I, I think that's a good point to bring up because um, I, I, it's it just shows how varied his talents are because Yojimbo is a completely different type of movie in terms of just like mood tone you know what i mean it's a little bit uh there's a little there's some good humor kind of throughout yojimbo where this is like it really is uh you know it really is invested in adapting the text you know what i mean it takes its um you know liberties or whatever uh maybe more so than other shakespeare adaptations you know kind of uh, adapting it to its environment but it really is interacting with the text, you know, in a way where, you know, it's something that's going to be on your mind while watching it. And I feel like the way, um, you know, this is just, this movie is a, a visual powerhouse, you know what I mean? Kurosawa oh, yeah. really letting his visual talents, uh, uh, you know, fly. And like, it, it feels like, you know, a lot of movies, you know, feel like a balance of kind of like, the story and the dialogue mm-hmm. and the visuals and the visuals kind of help, you know, it's kind of like I, for the Robert McKee types, you know, it's like a fit. The ideal is like a 50, 50 balance, mm-hmm. you know, whereas not to speak of, you know, ill of the dialogue here, but it's like everything is so uh, visually focused and it's very impressive because of that, because I think, um, you know, in this feudal Japan setting, Kurosawa is, is able to just unleash a singular tone of kind of like an impending doom and uh, just knows how to use the, the visual spaces of the forest or uh, these kind of these houses that, uh, you know, these characters inhabit and 
I yeah, mean, the, I just, the castle exteriors, the castle. Uh, he, he, he shot them on the slopes of Mount Fuji, you know, like this is the, those castle exteriors are some of the best, like geometric use of geography, uh, in any movie I've seen. I, I just think that he's, he's so adept with that kind of stuff. It's incredible. And this does what a lot of great films do, uh, where it opens up on a very, visually stylized uh, segment that, you know, maybe the whole movie isn't going to be quite that stylized, but it's going to be variations on that. And it's kind of like to show you what's up the sleeves uh, of the filmmaker, but there's still going to be surprises along the way. Uh, But yeah, man, that introduction with the song and just the fog uh, and the slow banks of fog rolling over the slopes of the Mount Fuji uh, is just some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever seen. The four, three framing. I mean, look, I love him using scope high and low. That's my favorite Kurosawa, but his use of four, three in this and the verticality of the framing is incredible. Yeah. For me, I was just like really overwhelmed with the atmosphere of it all, which is, I feel like something I generally like, I don't know. I like the tone like that. That does a lot to like set things for me in a film and whether or not I'll buy it. But I feel like uh, there are a lot of other Kurosawa movies that are like tighter, like faster, like a little bit more fever pitched. But this just has like, I don't know what Malcolm was kind of getting at this slow sort of foreboding impending doom that like, he's just able to draw out through uh, setting and just the way, like, again, you brought up the fog and there's so much rain and just wind and just, uh, I don't know. It plays out like a little bit more like slowly than I was anticipating, but that just makes it like all the more like deeply unsettling. Like when the, uh, Lady Macbeth, like, uh, sort of character, uh, like disappears into the darkness and just emerges there. That's like, that's, ugh, it's chilling. Just so haunting. Yeah, I mean, he is really bringing the height of visual language to transpose the height of written English language. You know, Kurosawa was one of those guys who, like, you know, Orson Welles or whoever else you want to say, treats Shakespeare as, you know, the true Bible, the real stuff. Uh, And he is truly just pulling out everything he can, but also keeping it to a level of, like, near classicism where it doesn't seem like it's, like, I don't know. It's it's things you could have pulled off in 1920 as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Like yeah. everything he does, it might be next level thinking, but the technology was there in 1920 probably. Uh, other than the sound stuff, then that comes in later. Uh, but he just seems like such a, a classicist in his own way, uh, in a way that actually reminds me of, in the American cinema, 50 years later, a person we're going to talk about an hour from now, David Fincher. Uh, I think both of them like have studied the classics of the system in which they make their movies and figured out all the angles, and they're not going to do anything that's like actually reinventing the wheel. They just know all the right moves. Uh, and obviously Kurosawa, you know, everyone knows that about him. Uh, so as we get into Throne of Blood here, uh, I, I love the, you know, the flute and drum song intro, like s- really setting that tone too, because that's the the popular instrumentation for no drama. It's just going to be a flute and the drum. And whenever, because 
the film's pretty restrained with its soundtrack, so whenever it kicks in, it is like because the drama is kicking into hyperdrive. And I just really love how it uses that uh, those musical stings as exclamation points. Something else it, it does well that JT was talking about, and I think yeah, you're kind of getting at it too with uh, Kurosawa being a classicist, is that, like you said, he's never really reinventing the wheel but it's kind of like he's towing the line a little bit you know what i mean he's pushing scenes to like the line of being too abstract but they're not i mean obviously you think of kind of like the beginning uh forest sequence and not not, you know it's kind of almost maybe after they meet this uh you know the famous witch that it foretells the the tale the tale that you know colors the rest of the story kind of like them being lost in the woods is it's it's the way that's depicted is so good because it, you, you like you just you could just tell by uh their writing and kind of just the the repetitiveness of of them mm-hmm. in the forest it's like it's never explicitly kind of like said their loss but you just you feel the loss just in uh the through the fog and the atmosphere and kind of like the way he shoots it it's a uh, i don't know it takes very uh you know, somewhat simple con- uh, concepts and just layers them with, uh, you know, strong visuals, visuals to accompany them. Yeah, I mean, that spiderweb stuff is just, uh, you know, brilliantly rendered. Uh, the spiderweb's forest, that is, which is the forest that guards the castle, of course. And uh, it, the visual language there, you know, he's he's foregrounding like tree branches and stuff like that and using these crazy high speed tracking shots to match uh you know mifune and uh, the guy who plays miki uh like you know just trailblazing through this forest lost and he's also using these wipe transitions that he uses often to advance plot and to show time passing and like sequencing things one after another so you're almost used to like he, he even used those wipe transitions in the beginning that exposition dump about you know building up the reputation of Macbeth or in this one uh, Wazishu. I don't know. Uh, he's he's tricking the viewer in a very clever way with his own visual language uh, in getting the viewer just as lost in the spiderweb forest as the two characters. Then we meet the witch. First, I guess biggest change to the. Shakespeare text there is that it's one witch instead of three, but this witch is good enough for three in my book. Uh, really just like the oldest person I've ever seen <laughs> uh, spinning these two yarns back and forth, this weird doohickey they're running. Uh, and I fidget just... Fidget spinner. Yeah, yeah. It's a feudal <laughs> Japanese fidget spinner. It looked fun. I wanted to like play with it. Like You know what I mean? I wanted to spin the wheel. And you know what? I feel like I feel like one witch is good I, three witches is kind of like it's overkill it's over it's overkill it's, it's kind of like it's just like what are they gonna like finish each other's sentences or whatever like it's just like like i like i like a nice solo witch you know there's something a little bit more scarier about that i don't know i just like one witch i don't need three witches I also love uh, this is when Mifune's mugging just comes right through is like when the when uh, the prophecy is being foretold and he's just like yucking it up. But then when the first piece of the prophecy comes true about him getting a promotion to being like whatever the the in charge of that one fleet of the military, uh, his mugging is so crazy where he's just like, oh, my God, like he's just all, always over the top. I think it was Felipe Furtado who said in a review of uh, another uh, 
Kurosawa film that the reason there's such a good match is that, you know, Kurosawa and Mifune respectively are like the biggest over director and over actor ever. And that's what makes them so perfect to execute these like huge grandiose dramas with incredibly involved camera direction. But then also he can just plant the camera there and let Mifune do everything. Yeah, no, there are some moments that like are just like the perfect synthesis of what you're talking about there where Mifune is registering like horror and just sort of mm. shock in like the most like big way but uh Kurosawa will will sometimes like restrain that where it'll be like we'll start off with like a shot behind him and then we get like sort of this slow reveal mm. of just like him just comprehending like what's going on as he's just going deeper and deeper into off uh, into madness no i feel like the way kind of like the mifune character's relationship to the movie like i feel like the movie is very uh kind of like loyal to its protagonist in a way where everything kind of unfolds you know through the his perspective like we're kind of seeing through his perspective here and kind of like uh I don't know, like every everything else, like he's overacting. I, you know, like we said positively, we use that we we reclaim mm-hmm. terms here. You know what I mean? Uh, but like, like everyone else is like giving like this affected performance, especially the wife, the lady Macbeth, who kind of just like slinks in and out of frame like a, a ghost. Or yeah, no, Yamada, her performance is ridiculous as the uh, the inverse of Toshiro Mofune because, like, yeah, she's overacting, but in the opposite way. Like, she just completely stays still and takes 10 seconds to deliver one word. Uh, but it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I really think that uh, the changes that Kurosawa makes with the Lady Macbeth stuff too are really impactful because like the Lady Macbeth sleepwalking scene, that's not present here. R- instead of her sleepwalking through uh, the town or whatever and finding those two drinkers and spilling her guts to them like in the in the Shakespeare text, uh, she just, everyone's watching her because she's, you know, uh, the lady of, you know, the great Lord. And so they're all just like watching her sleep from a foot away. And then she just starts sleep talking about, you know, the blood on her hands and everything like that. And I, I really love how like, yeah, you see that character. Kurosawa was not going to have her like walk around or anything like that. She just like stays so staid. Like when she goes to uh, poison uh, the uh, the security guards of the Great Lord when they go kill him the first time. Uh, well, they only kill him once, but when the first murder is executed, uh, she's like slinking in and out so slow, and the the kimono is the loudest piece of clothing ever. Oh yeah. <laughs> No, that bringing up the kimono again, I feel like you talked about, I mean, very reserved in terms of uh, music the film is, but as well, like with the sound effects Mm -hmm. and it just makes every like things like that, like the kimono, just like hearing the fabric there brush just pop. And then also obviously like the recurring motif of the birds like happening. It's, uh, I don't know, just a masterful use of sound as well there's a real emphasis on kind of like the emptiness of uh, the the home of the Lord. I don't know exactly what to call that. It's the castle. castle, the castle. And there's like nothing in that. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. have no, <laughs> no furniture. Well, I don't know. I like, I, I don't know if that's like 
you know, in Japanese feudal time, furniture <laughs> wasn't up as popular. Hands. I'm throwing up my hands. Like, don't get, don't get mad Look, at me. If I anyone don't can afford furniture, it's them. Yeah, they exactly. just don't want it. They just don't, they want, don't it. want And And, like, I feel like uh, one thing I made note of is, like, uh, this is, like, there's so much floor in this movie. Like, yeah. like Kurosawa really knows how to, like, frame the floor and, like, the emptiness of the floor it's 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 one of the huge uh points of emphasis uh, emphasis throughout the movie and well it's interesting you bring that up because like uh everyone talks it's like a film school 101 thing with the other film school 101 japanese director ozu the the tatami shot in the you know character sitting on the floor and his camera being at the level of that so in this there are of course so many scenes of characters sitting on the floor on tatami mats and i just think that like it's a perfect you know a versus b both answers are correct which way you want to shoot that physically uh but i i think that the amount of yeah floor shown in the very empty rooms like I think Kurosawa obviously is playing that up for when it's uh, the Macbeth and Lady Macbeth characters together in a room and how isolated they are from everyone around them, even if everyone around them is, you know, technically still their loyal servant or whatever after they, you know, take the throne. Uh, I I just think that the isolation is a great, you know... um, substitution for usually more of an outward presentation of them going crazy from guilt. I think them isolating to themselves and just speaking in hushed tones to each other every night is much more effective. And I mean, some of that like floor staging you're talking about there just, I don't know, has a really cool, like in the earlier half uh, where Yamada is convincing Mifune to sort of go through with this plot. It really like, Mifune is like standing and sort of like pacing around like not looking at her and she's just sitting on the floor but because it's like this just mix of sort of empty space it gives you the real like sort of devil on your shoulder sort of position of her where she like because it's just empty space it's like she's floating beside him trying to whisper in his ear. Yeah, it's it's haunting stuff. I gotta say, uh, it's like I don't know. There's, uh, I mean, from some very basic wiki stuff, it's like no is usually the big themes of those dramas are about imper impermanence and stuff like that and this film really leans into that with you know here stood uh spider web castle being like the uh you know uh beginning and ending of the movie and the dissolves uh that bring it in and out and everything being kind of uh you know happening again and again through time and characters uh you know living on after their death etc uh i think that that angle of impermanence is really like uh important to what kurosawa is like getting out of this movie uh or out of this shakespeare text for his movie uh so the prophecies you know they start coming true uh some people not so happy about it you know uh miki his buddy he, he's got a son that's going to be king and his son's just like no i don't want to like uh and i i love that it's just like clearly someone with more enlightened a to b logic just being like yeah no that's bullshit like i'll take the throne if it's rightful but that's no that's stupid and uh i like that also that character in the shakespeare text is named malcolm that's that's cool i like it when characters are named malcolm but i, I think me too I, i'm always a fan yeah. of seeing that I mean, I think it's it's probably with every Macbeth adaptation, you know what I mean? But here, it, you know, a lot of, like I like that character and I like his kind of simple, you know, very clear minded refusal of the throne because 
you know, I feel like Macbeth, it's like the great, you know, classic uh, depiction of like, yeah, like trying to grasp power and all this stuff. It's like, it's a, it's, uh, you know, it has a very cynical view of it. It's like, it's kind of like, it's like to, to come to power, to kind of take power, i.e., you know, to harm someone else to, you know, get a higher position is, is always going to lead towards bad things. You know what I mean? And, and the, and the result, you know, it might even drive yourself crazy if you have a, a moral compass. So I feel like kind of just the clear refusal is just, I, I like that character because it really just, it outlines what you could do. You could just say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do a bad thing. But is he a man? Because, but does not ambition make a man, according to Lady Macbeth, you know? Yeah. So, hey, that's, you know, Malcolm, if you want to just stay where you are, you know, stay in uh, Watsonville, California, yeah. stay with your folks, you know, <laughs> non-ambitious <laughs> Malcolm, really, that's you're fine. You're sounding like a fucking fight club right now, man. Come on. <laughs> people people are going to know we record this back to back. You're a little too dirty <laughs> right now, man. You need to, <laughs> need to chill out. Don't you know that movie? It's not exactly endorsing. All the stuff that's shown. <laughs> I don't know. All right, we'll get to that. I don't know if that. know that, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's a teaser for the upcoming Patreon episode on Fight Club. But regardless, uh, back to Throne of Blood. I, I just think that, like, there's so many little moments of execution of filmmaking that are just genius, you know? Uh, like, when uh, his army is starting to retreat uh, the first time, and, uh, you know, Toshiro Mufune is starting to get, like, really fired up, and, you know, starting to his people are maybe starting to doubt his directions, he just, like runs directly at the camera shouting you know get my horse uh and it just leads to these super fast uh tracking shots alongside him on horseback and i don't know the way that kurosawa was able to build momentum through those shots on horseback is really incredible it's uh it's great you know horseback filming technology i guess this movie kind of has like these uh action-packed like mostly battle sequences and then it's mm-hmm. kind of paired with like kind of like the stillness and kind of like, you know, these these castle rooms where all the scheming is going down. And I feel like it, it does a really good job of kind of ramping up the action and then kind of sucking the air out of the movie, you know, once it goes down to the Macbeth, Lady Macbeth type stuff. Uh, so... As we get like into the third act, and you know, we don't need to go beat for beat because it's Macbeth. It's one of the most told stories ever, you know. But uh, so, of course, the uh, the army's starting to doubt him a bit, and right as he's like at the peak of his <laughs> arrogance, kinda, I have to say, ha <laughs> The the shot of him walking up and down the bridge trying to fire up his troops, uh, the scene before he gets taken down with the arrows. Like Kurosawa had to be basing that in terms of framing and staging off the footage of like Mussolini and Hitler, right? Like I, I the way the crowd is framed against him and the way that he's flailing his arms about and the the delivery of it, it feels so uh, self consciously post war, post fascism. You know, applying that back to the classical texts, and I just thought that was fascinating um, because clearly this is like 
still a post-World War II movie, even if it's a decade after he wanted to make it as a post-World War II movie. Uh, so then, of course, we get the uh, the prophecy, you know, says that uh, the only way he'll ever die is if the trees move toward him in battle, and we see the trees coming. And here's the big difference is that, you know, in the Shakespeare, you know, you generally would see the people disguised as trees, but I love that this film leans into the mysticism and into Mifune or Macbeth's perspective to where he sees the trees approaching and you see all the fog and he just purely believes it, that something magical has happened uh, through, you know, the spirit that foretold what was going to happen so far and that the forest is truly coming to conquer his castle. And uh, it's not revealed until the very end and after he's dead that it is just people carrying pieces of trees as um, camouflage, of course. Uh, and then comes the biggest change that he makes, of course, uh, to the Shakespeare text. Macbeth is taken down by his own army here instead of a duel with Macduff. Uh, it's like he's just gets so fired up and the people are just so against him that they just rain arrows on him in one of the most brutal action scenes of all time. Uh, it is so incredible. Kurosawa had like marksman arrow guys on set just like trying to nail Toshiro Mifune who was <laughs> reacting in real time wearing all that clunky armor. It's just one of the most like piercing no pun intended but uh, just like pounding violent scenes I've ever seen really and all because of the drama that comes from it. You know, it's not gory like a like a Saw movie, but the, the drama mounting and using that as a subversion of the actual climax of Macbeth is like, it's genius filmmaking to me. I love how, you know, we don't even get much of like the outside, like what, you know, what do the people kind of think about, you know, his uh, rise to power until that scene kind of, right? Like I, at least, unless I miss something, like I feel like, you don't exactly know if the public's with him or not, but it's like when he starts talking about the trees, it's like, oh, you could kind of feel like, oh, he's losing them. Yeah. It's like, what are yeah. the, talking about a moving tree? What the hell? Um, and, and, <laughs> and the arrow work is, is, is like amazing because it is like, it's, it's for a lot of that scene, it keeps the kind of like uh, under, like it's, it's like Mifune is, is uh, the camera's like under Mifune as he kind of like, yeah. runs away from the arrow so you kind of get you know Mussol that Mussolini vibe but it's like what if they just they killed one of those you know fascist leaders <laughs> that we nobody seems to like so um I also love yeah. how like unbalanced the coverage is there's like 800 different angles of Mifune taking uh arrows and then there will just be like I think through the whole sequence there's two shots looking down at the people firing the arrows and they're just completely enshrouded in fog and it's just such a masterful composition but then the reverse of that all the reverses of that are just these like sloppy crazy mifune going crazy getting nailed to the wall with arrows it's just fucking beautiful and i don't know his last stand when he has one through the head is just some of the most insane like action acting i've ever seen in my life these arrows you know what i mean it's like i i feel like i've never seen this much arrow work up close like that like i feel like <laughs> and like maybe like older war movies or something like you'll get a wide and they're shooting arrows and but you're not really getting you're not seeing that arrow in action and you're not like I, I feel like when i was younger i would be like why don't like in a movie it's like if someone shoots an arrow at someone you could just like knock that down 
you know what I mean? But it's like, obviously, <laughs> that's that's not true. But it, it's kind of like just I love the sheer amount of air. Like this, Mifune gets shot with like five hundred arrows in that scene. And, and, you know, it's it's. it's I mean, amazing. it's so over the top. It suits the performance there yeah. of just just getting pelted. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts and a rating on this one, JT? Uh, yeah, no, I love this movie. I, uh, I'll admit, I'm a little bit of a dimwit, a simpleton. I uh, scratch my balls. I pick my nose like the common man. Uh, I don't really. Uh, I'm the Shakespeare texts themselves. I'm not really visiting all that much. Um, and I, I gotta be honest, generally like, uh, a director adapting them, it's something that I'm a little bit less inclined, uh, to pick up, but I do think it's always fascinating to see, like, I, I don't know, less so than the text itself. Um, I mean, like a lot of theatrical work, uh, the interpretation of it and, uh, you get to get the director's perspective there through what they're. Uh, cutting out what they're including what they're heightening or changing uh and this uh i don't know kurosawa has really just latched on to like the immense tragedy of it all and i feel like obviously that's why uh, the shakespeare stories i feel like are so impactful and like able to be retold like so frequently and uh yeah i don't know like it's just masterful he just evokes such an intense mood gets these like fever or the fever pitch Mifune performance and is just built some of the most insane images. Like I've seen the uh, arrows being shot before in like a variety of like, I don't know, classic movie, just like uh, compilation clips just thrown together. The and, thumbnail on a sight and sound list. Exactly. And it's just like you see that, but it's seeing it in action. It's just like, oh, that like Yamada fading into the shadows like the fog, like the witch just sort of like disappearing into thin air. Those are images that are just legitimately going to stick with me forever. And uh, I'm excited to revisit this and also, again, go deeper into Kurosawa. Rating? Uh, four and a half bolts. Malcolm. Yeah, I'm going to go four bolts, uh, four arrows, if you like to have fun like that. You know what I mean? And JD, that- yeah, we haven't done a fun alternate uh, delivery method of painful ratings yet. Or in a while, rather. So, you know, the arrow noises. Uh, but, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, just, just make more work for me. I'll, 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 fi- I'll find some sound effects. You could, you yeah, could sure. use those. I just made them for you. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But that's a good point, JT, with like the Shakespeare talk. Like I, I have, uh, I didn't even really consider that. You know, obviously it's a you know foreign language, so I'm going to be, you know, reading a lot of it. But yeah, a lot of like these Shakespeare mm-hmm. adaptations, they have like this old English speak, and they're talking like that. Like I, I, I know the Shakespeare heads; they love the dialogue. Like that's like the best part, right? I don't know. I'm, sure. I, like, well, a lot of people like. Well, that. to some, yeah. I wouldn't say so. Yeah, yeah. but, but it, it could be a little rigid yeah. being in iambic the whole time, you know. But uh, I personally think the dramatic structure is the one thing you can always take. You know, like the it's kind of a canon of stories and characters, kind of. Uh, and yeah, that's why I usually prefer you know r- variations on it where it's a not a direct transposition of the dialogue yeah not i guess not to not all shakespeare fans but i feel like there's a lot of people who like 
like like the the dialogue or whatever and it's it is it's just it could be tough for me so that kind of being removed here you know is i guess a blessing that i didn't even really think about uh but yeah like kurosawa adapting this like i think what makes it great is that it's not even it's just like simple subtle tweaks to the to the original story and kind of just like uh very specific decisions that he makes with the camera, uh, you know, and it, and it, it really just go, that stuff goes a long way, you know what I mean? And being, being as proficient as he is and as visually inventive as he is and very committed to, uh, you know, this very specific mood and like kind of staying with the perspective, you know, of Mufune here and you know it's it's kind of like that's what's great about this movie it's like he's kind of like uh i feel like in other macbeth adaptations i might be wrong here but like i feel like he's like we see him get swayed by the idea of power and maybe there's a little bit of that here but it's almost like all this is like happening to him like this prophecy you know what i mean it's like a it's a it's almost some would say a curse i don't know uh but yeah uh, no yeah. i feel like it yeah. leans into the inevitability a lot more than his ambition as a flaw for yeah sure, which i love yeah i think that's awesome because the inevitability the prophecy it all feeds into the mysticism and it's a play that opens with a witch so it should lean into the mysticism you know mm-hmm. yeah exactly I, I definitely agree so uh yeah it just it just shows me you know as as a beginner kurosawa fan that you know this guy is one of the ultimate directors because it's you know it's not he doesn't just uh have a certain type of movie he makes this is a guy who i don't know it seems it's it seems like his filmography is very vast and contains a lot of different uh bends and turns and uh, i'm very excited to to dig in more you know throughout the entirety of my life you know what i mean when i'm 80 i'm gonna feel like i might pop one of these on so uh yeah enjoyed throwing a blood um five bullets for me <laughs> i just started thinking about malcolm when he's 80 and <laughs> <laughs> i just have to give all the bullets i can right now just while like well i can all right <laughs> Uh, I've said my piece on this movie Uh, I've definitely dominated this one a bit much I'm sorry you guys Uh, I was very very stoked to talk about it Because Malcolm picked Such a great topic for me to riff on Everyone loves Shakespeare It's presented like that Uh, You know whatever It's like yeah I felt like I'm at a sports game Like I should be cheering Oh like a a sports Maybe like a monster truck rally style Shakespeare (laughs) I I could see a a boxing announcer Kind of like announcing every character entrance You know uh, Weighing in at uh, Five foot four and 108 pounds He doesn't have much ambition But (laughs) The throne's his if he wants it. It's Malcolm. One more thing before we close the book on this. Did you guys see the Cohen Macbeth? Was it Joel or Yeah, it? it was a it was a fucking stinker, dude. Well, don't you think like he he was kind of biting Throne of Blood like pretty hard a little bit? Yeah. Like like I mean in totally terms of the for, visual approach. Yeah, like he's totally going for that. Yeah. He's he's going for like digital throne of blood kind of. Yeah. yeah. I uh it's it's more it's more studio bound I would say. Totally. Uh like with this one the exteriors are all real at least. Uh that one has a lot of like fake studio exteriors where it's like yeah, it's trying to do the throne of blood aesthetic with a very digital cinematography aesthetic. Is that one also like dialogue like to yeah. the, you know. Yeah. 
it's yeah look i i was really trying with it because it's like a lot of actors i like i like joel cohen i'm not looking at it and seeing bad choices made really other than some of the performances i wasn't too crazy about but like in terms of you know the shot selection i guess i I wasn't complaining and the idea it's like yeah hey great go ahead make it i guess joel uh but yeah it kind of sucked and uh, i think that if the Coens together or just Joel wanted to, you know, uh, remake a Shakespeare in a Throne of Blood way, uh, where you're transposing the characters into a different setting, they could do it brilliantly because yeah, no. they have such a great knack for idiosyncratic characters. So obviously they're going to transpose all these great characters in such great ways and their ear for dialogue is all time great. So why are you doing a direct fucking Macbeth? It's like so dumb. Yeah. Sorry, rant over, segment over. We'll be right back on extended clip. Worst Macbeth ever. <laughs> Enjoyed the show, seeing me eat a bo- uh, bite of my fiance's pasta and uh, some <laughs> chips. She, well, yeah, well fed, you know. So it's like uh, some. Oh yeah, I got the Urs uh, Old Bay chips Ooh. going. Some East Coast shit. Some East Coast oh, shit, yeah. man. You're on I'm, on my, I'm already on my crab <laughs> crab chip shit. Yeah, like that's only that's only, you know. <laughs> I'm, I, I just talked into my Diet Coke instead of my mic. That's a good visual. That's a good visual. I'm, I'm trying to look. And I just tried to drink this. Right. Fuck me. <laughs> trying to drink the mic. You're all topsy turvy, man. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, it is the email segment, everybody's favorite segment. You can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Um, you know, going back, I actually missed one a little while ago. Uh, this one comes from Peter, and it says, Hey, fellas, what did you think of John Singleton's drink champs, and when is Nori going to be a guest on Extended Clip? I never, 
So I have not. Yeah, no. Yeah, I never watched that particular episode of Drink Champs. Malcolm, are you a fan of said podcast? I was going to say I haven't. I haven't gotten into Drink Champs, but I. I guess I remember when Kanye went on there, and I did watch a little bit of that. So it seems. It seems like a pretty entertaining. I agree with some of the stuff he said on that interview. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I forgot that's a sensitive subject for you, but um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm joking. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> kind of sensitive is kind of a uh, dog whistle anti-Semitic term. <laughs> no, but uh, I think I I just want to say I think they're hosting a quality show over there. I like their set. I feel like a lot of podcasts, like when they go visual, we don't have a set yet. This is casual. But, like, <laughs> yeah, this is a great yeah, way yeah. to criticize another <laughs> podcast. When they have like sets, like we haven't splurged thousands of dollars on a podcast studio yeah. or a set like i feel like uh 90 of the time that like those sets look completely dog shit like they're just like they look like a fucking like a taco bell remodel or something like that um <laughs> that uh, there's some liveliness to the set I, I i like the set that they have hey man if uh noriega or i guess now he's just nori uh wants to come on the pod you know, I'm not going to say no. It's, it's purely a clout thing. I'm not. I'm not going to say. I'm, a, I'm not going to say I'm a drink champs fan. You ever listen to Component or They're pretty good. They're pretty good. Oh, I don't think they're bad. Yeah. It's just like it's not really my thing or whatever. Uh, you know, I like uh, I like rock and roll music. Um, <laughs> no, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> I'm not really into like uh, hip hop style podcasting. Frankly, I'm more of a jazz singer songwriter, classical, and only certain kinds of jazz. Frankly, you know, Bill Evans is my guy. But you know, I like when musicians uh, actually play the instruments. Sorry if uh, you know I sound Sorry like a jerk, friends. but. Uh, the next email we have is from what is this guy's actual name? He gives like a different display name, email name, and like what he signs what off the email. Sign off, okay, suppose. it's from okay, it's from Howard. It took me a long time to locate it. All right, guys. Uh, so this is an email about our last episode, which was on American Pie. That is a Patreon episode. You can go to patreon.com slash extended clip and listen to us talk about American Pie from 1999. This is from Howard. Hey, Eddie, Malcolm, and JT. Since having moved from the place I'd called home all my life to a whole other state hours away, I can really relate to what Eddie must be going through. Congrats on the proposal, by the way. Maybe I shouldn't read the parentheticals. It'll clean me up a lot of time on this email, but let's just go for it. So I've been back to sinking my own sorrows into the unrated four-pack Blu-ray collection of the entire American Pie franchise that I bought at a FYE on a whim over a year ago. I had already seen the first one twice, so I decided to get into the sequels and find out what really makes them tick. I enjoy all of the films pretty much equally as the perfect three-bullet comedies, but the third one, American Wedding, was the most bizarre to me for many reasons. First and most prominently is that it's directed by Jesse Dillon, one of the many sons of pod favorite Bob Dillon, whose illustrious career includes other middling 2000s comedies such as Will Ferrell's Kicking and Screaming and every Wu-Tang heads must see How High. Um, I would say, you know, How High is more for... uh, Comedy Central 2AM guys than Wu-Tang heads uh, at this point in time. (laughs) Uh, Kicking and Screaming, you know, it's not good. Uh, Even the bomb back with the same name is better, but I do, like, I'll always have Will Ferrell saying, uh, I just got punched by Mike Ditka, like, into a mirror, uh, you know, in the back of my head. 
surprised that his acting uh, career didn't take off after that. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he was really full of chemistry in that. Mike Ditka, if, you know, for the viewers, if you don't, or if you're not familiar with his work on television, it's just like, you know, if you imagine like Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Kanye West, uh, you know, all of like the most just like Barack Obama, you know, the people that can just command a room uh, and light up the camera. That is, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, that's him. Absolutely. Anyway, going back to this, uh, uh, while the first two installments of the American Pie franchise are shot in a very basic style with low contrast naturalistic color and only occasional fun long take, Dylan's entry is very grainy, shot in scope, and has a high contrast color palette, uses blown out lights uh, that halo characters in every scene and will occasionally go out of focus uh, and utilizes a lot of handheld. There's even a scene where, okay, I'm not going to like get into the actual, you know, uh, all of it, but he says that it reminds him of uh, the celebration the uh uh who's that by is that hanukkah or is that a no, di- no no that's a, uh what's his name fuck. Uh, um fucking uh the vigo drinking yeah, movie. yeah 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 who cares european mid uh i just have to ask what happened here oh, wow. the cinematographer has done nothing of note that would inspire uh any of this unnecessary aesthetic artiness and dylan himself seemed uh just to be a hack who could never do anything exciting could this nepo journeyman be a comedy auteur uh this leads to the question Fucking finally. This leads to the question, have you ever noticed dumb movies that wouldn't normally be expected to have any visual flair or especially interesting aesthetics that do anyway? These kind of mise-en-scene oddities are what I live for. Oh my god, mise-en-scene oddities are what I live for. Hey, be nice. He listens to the show, man. It'd be nice <laughs> to him. Our, I like him, dude. All I like of him. our listeners... All of our listeners write like just novel length and are very yeah. sweet, and then you just cut them down to bits. Yeah. Well, maybe you cut your email down to bits. <laughs> Congratulations, the podcast means so much to me. Fuck you, loser. Get to the point. Hey, we like me's on saying out of these. We can't. We can't pretend like yeah. we don't. Yeah. Well, he wraps up by saying, "Have a great day," and I've been enjoying the podcast for a while. For me, for now, and sincerely, Howard. Yes, thank so, you. If that makes you feel any better. Thank you, man. Yeah, thank I you, appreciate. Howard. I really do. Others don't, but I do. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, people come to the pod for the the they want to be roasted by cantankerous Eddie. If you're sending in an email, you want to be cut down to size. Well, it's really that I'm living up to my you send it, I read it yeah. promise. But the thing is, sometimes I really don't want to read it. Like, it's just, frankly, yeah. too yeah, long. you monologuing for five minutes in someone else's voice. Yeah, it's like, if I'm going to monologue for five <laughs> yeah. minutes on this podcast, it's going to be written by me or off the dome by me, not written by Howard, if that's even your real name. Clearly, it's not. Like, Oh, Howard, sorry, are you using your big brother Jim's email account? Like, you should stop the emails or something. Maybe we should have people write in. I don't no, know. I, it's the only part of the show I like anymore. I. That's Howard. Please email a real question that I will have a positive, happy answer to at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. I- I have a real answer. To I got this. it too. I, yeah, I like. I like the <laughs> that's, that's the thing. It I actually like is question. a good question. Yes, we love Howard. Just so much run around. <laughs> it's like okay. So if 
if the seven if the Wawa is two hundred feet away from my apartment that well, way, I love the regional correction. <laughs> if the Wawa is two hundred feet that way, why are you going five miles to South Philly to a different Wawa? Like, just go to the one that's right there. Just ask the question. You wanted to take a anyway. Walk, you know, uh, question answer. Well, I have a bike. Sometimes it's nice to be heard. Yeah. Um. Oh. We're a voice for the disenfranchised. I don't want to change that. You know. <laughs> um, who's who, I, I, I'll go with my answer first. I feel like um, obvious one comes to mind for me, uh, like height of dumb movie that I absolutely love. Um, does have a cinematographer with uh, some cred, but Austin Powers. Uh, the first one in particular, I think like, the gags uh, in each movie, they do get lazier and lazier. The cinematography gets lazier each time. But the first one is pretty tied to the concept of being a James Bond parody. And, like, I don't know, it looks really good. Yeah, like, shot uh, between uh, two David Lynch projects by Peter Deming, you know? And, exactly. Uh, I actually, I knew you were going to go with that one right away. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, that's, like, the perfect answer. Uh, that, that movie is so handsomely shot in scope. Um frankly like the reason that the dumb bit where he's trying to make a u-turn in oh, the cart yeah, works no, so well exactly. is because it's such a long frame like uh, it's a scope frame but it's such a narrow passageway that there's like 80 percent of the frame is like dead basically <laughs> it's just this tiny little thing of mike myers going back and forth <laughs> and frankly that's like really really smartly executed visual comedy even if it's the dumbest possible gag of a guy not being able to turn around it's you know just a duration gag like the family guy knee thing you know uh but yeah i think late 90s studio comedies are gonna have that down like obviously if you think dumb action movies also have no right to look good i think action movies have always been stylish though the way horror movies have uh but or at least in the right hands you know uh but yeah i think like 90s comedy movies generally just the height of the studio competency at the time are gonna have such a visual panache same with Hong Kong 90s comedies, because every 90s Hong Kong movie was treated like an action movie. So even when it wasn't, it would have action scenes like the way that like uh, certain film cultures are with musical sequences, you know, where everything is going to have at least one musical sequence like late 80s to 90s Hong Kong movies, other than like the very few art house exceptions, there's just always going to be like some crazy choreography in it. You know, Stephen Chow's Love on Delivery has some insane choreography. In it. <laughs> Stephen Chow's God of Cookery, another really goofy comedy with just like groundbreaking camera work, like insane choreography and camera work. Um, yeah, so those those are my answers. I think I have the perfect, perfect response to this uh, question because... I, I had I, I when I saw the question asked, I was like, there's a movie that perfectly fits it. But I was trying to like rack my brain. And then when I came up with it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is and it's the number 23. I have I have sang oh, I, have, yeah. I have sang the praises of the number 23 before. I think JT himself has has watched it. This movie, we're big number twenty three fans. Big, I mean, yeah. like not like it's not amazing. You're but two of the twenty three people <laughs> in the world who like it. Well, yeah. and, and, it, and it just specific to his question, it's like really the most like dog shit dumb fucking premise like i've ever heard in my entire life like a guy becomes obsessed with the number 23 i guess honestly maybe there could be some fun in there but it's like it's pretty literal like he's just like he's obsessed with 23 and he's writing it on the walls and but this movie literally looks like lost highway 
It's a uh, it's shot by a uh, Libatik who is an accomplished cinematographer. So oh yeah, so I, that guy can elevate. Like yeah. honestly, Matthew Libatik is someone who is still to this day elevating slop to like get people to think that people are good directors. Like yeah. I'm sorry, I I like Bradley Cooper's A Star Is Born. I think Libatik probably carried a lot of it. Frankly, I think he probably learned how to direct actors from Clint Eastwood pretty well, but. That's a cinematographer's movie right there, in my opinion. I, I don't think that's unfair to say. Uh, and I think yeah. number 23 is, um, well, it's it's there's a whole lot of things that are stupid about it. Not only is it the number 23, but it's also like Jim Carrey's big, serious movie. Like jazz, neo-noir style yeah. stuff, like so insane. And, and, to, and to be honest, you know, I can't even really speak to the quality of the acting. All I could say is that he commits a hundred percent to to the it, you know the uh, the dumbness of the premise and the move. It's one of the movies that like it truly is carried by the mood and cinematography to the finish line to the point where it's like I'm I'm not I'm not even like I'm like no this is kind of like a good movie just because it looks good and it maintains its mood throughout and it just has a a coolness to it like the the color tones that I. I always really go for kind of in a movie and uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I, I might need a little number 23 rewatch. It's, it's something I want to watch. And you're, you're getting me hyped. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's so stupid. It's entertaining. Yeah, like absolutely. it's like that, like that you can definitely like it, it crosses that threshold where it's just like, okay, it looks great. Like I'm having a fun time with like the nonsense. There's an insane sequence oh. where like Jim Carrey, I forgot the reason why, but he's having a, he's having sex maybe like cheating on his wife or whatever and it's like it's done through like these dirty polaroids and kind of like uh like kind of there's some aggressive music going and it's like like this is legitimately like insane like this does actually feel like something out of lost highway like i really do feel like it's like almost like a lost highway like not ripoff but but it's like yeah it's it's definitely it's taking so much from that um yeah number 23 big fan All right, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Extended Clip. If you want more, you know where to get it. Extended Clip Patreon. Patreon.com slash extended underscore clip. Um, $5 a month, you get another episode. The last bonus episode, American Pie. The next bonus episode, Fight Club. Are we doing a bonus episode series on the year 1999? No, it just happens to be that we did back-to-back 99 movies. Uh, But regardless, we will see you soon. And uh, yeah, that's about it, unless you guys have anything to plug. Nah. Just have a good time. What if I ever asked you guys to promote something? (laughs) Yeah, have fun. fun. (laughs) Promote a healthy lifestyle for once. Ha 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 